Welcome once again to episode 97 of the Geek Greg's podcast. This is part four of our San Diego Comic-Con coverage. So this last segment is full of comic creator interviews. I got a chance to interview some people at DC Comics as well as Archie Comics. Enjoy. Hi! First up, we've got Mark Russell, the writer of the fantastic new DC Comics series, Prez. So first thing I wanted to ask is, in Prez number one, you have a lot of really smart and really funny ideas about the future that you kind of put forth. How did you decide what ideas or what concepts you wanted to kind of exaggerate for that future? And did you do any kind of research, or was it just kind of looking around and seeing what kind of funny things you wanted to, you know, bring up? Well, I think the things that I really like are, are the, the, the things I like really take a lot of time in building the world in which they exist. So I spent a lot of time thinking about the world before I even started writing stories about Prez. So a lot of the things that I decided to populate it with are sort of nascent technologies that we have now that I, I see either dark uses uh, that can be used for in the future or things that are being for, used for dark things now that I think could be made, that could actually be made to serve people better in the future. So I, it was really kind of a critique on how the way we're misusing technology and, and, and people now, and I figured I would just extrapolate ways in which people could, and things can be further abused or, or the way we could change the way the, these technologies and, and humans are, are treated in the future. So you've got a lot of experience with satire in the past, um, particularly with religious satire in your work, um, God is Disappointed in You. How, how did you kind of turn your eye towards political satire, and how has that kind of differed for you so far? Well, my, I think my worldview can probably best be described as a reverence, which I see as a breed of honesty. I don't, know, I don't revere anything enough that I won't look at its flaws, but I don't hate anything enough that I can't see its virtues. And so I feel like that's the way I, I turn, that's the sort of prism I want to turn onto anything I'm writing about. And in terms of politics, the only thing that really was different than God is Disappointing was the research I was doing and the, the, the opinions I have about the world and the direction it's going as formed by you know, recent history. But otherwise, it's exactly the same beast. So a lot of your past work has been prose and has involved, like, single-panel cartooning kind of style. How has uh, working with Ben Caldwell been? How's the process been doing that more sequential art style with, with press? Well, I have to think a lot more visually uh, as opposed to writing something as exposition or having the character say something. I can actually show it in the panel, which is really liberating. And it's, it's really helped me to start thinking in those terms. And plus, Ben comes up with a lot of great little background details and, and stuff. So uh, a lot of times he will come up with something that will then inspire me to write like a line of dialogue that addresses it. Like one of my favorite things he's drawn so far is like in the uh, in issue one, I have uh, Beth working at a, a corn dog place. And um, I just put in my notes, the, the employees are wearing ridiculous costumes. But what he came up with was these, these people wearing these like um, dachshund hats. And so, like, I actually started incorporating notes, like, lines about the, the hats in, in future issues and, and stuff. And she doesn't want to give up her hat after she becomes president. She has to go back to the corndog place and ask for an advance on her paycheck, even after she becomes president. And they're like, what do you care? You're the president. And she's like, yeah, but they don't pay until the end of the month. So it's the kind of thing you have to think about when you're a teenager working at a corndog place, even if you are, you know, the commander-in-chief. you got to kind of make it until payday. 
Very nice. <laughs> so uh, let's talk about Beth a little bit. So when you were first starting work on the book and getting your ideas for it and everything, how did you decide to, to make her a, a fresh, a totally new character separated from the original Perez? And how do you feel like she's different and, and what have you put into her to make her different? Well, I wanted to do a very different comic than Prez, the original. Plus, you know, I think that the original Prez was more relevant for the early 70s. It was about how they thought youth culture was about to take over the world. Now the 18-year-olds could vote. And, and we're in a very different world now. We're in a world where lar- youth culture has largely failed, where the, uh, the, the, the government and politics are largely controlled by, by, by elites and, and non egalitarian forces so I wanted to do a, a comic that was about this political reality and to, to make that separation as cleanly as possible I wanted to come up with a completely different character in as many ways as possible from the original Prez Rickard although I will say uh, Rick, Prez Rickard does show up as a character in the, the new Prez he's super old uh, he's like in his 70s and he's a sort of a, a failed wonderkind from the past who did not become president in my, my world but he, but he is there. But it's, I want it to be a very different comic about a very different time in American history. The way you see Prez is about youth culture, the original Prez is about youth culture having failed. Do you think that now, like in your view now, is that a thing that's changed? Is that a, an idea that holds more water now, that potentially there's some hope there? I think that it's, in a way, youth culture is far more threatening or, or promising now than it was in the early 70s because it's transcending politics. It's more about recreating the world with using technologies and social media in a way that was inconceivable back then. Because, you know, as, you know, as, as enlightened as the hippies may have been in the early 70s, or, you know, they, they still had to work within the, the media and social paradigms of their time. They still had to, you know, somehow get on television. They still had to, like, you know, uh, spread their message through the mass media. That's no longer the case. Social media allows the, allows the youth movement and um, millennials to completely create their own culture independently of what the, the people who own the means of communication can, can, uh, can channel them into. So one thing that, that's really different, too, about your, your uh, story is that most of the early press stories are really, really short. How did you hit on 12 issues, and kind of what do you, how do you plan to expand that world into, into a longer-form story like that? Well, yeah, the 12 issues is what D.C. originally came up with because it kind of takes us up to the 2016 election. And they figured there was going to be, like, in, more interest in political satire because of the, the election. But uh, I'm really, we're really starting to think of it in terms of two six-issue long story arcs, So, which was good because it allows me to – I don't have to be – it's not like a bad 30s radio serial drama. I can, I can, I, it gives me room to sort of world build and to, like, have side stories and to really make the – the universe of Prez come alive in a way I couldn't if I had to do a, a succinct, complete story every single issue. You know, and, and, and plus I think that, that that sort of single issue approach just kind of lends itself to like impossibility. It's like, oh, well, well this one he's fighting vampires. The next one he'll be boxing a gorilla. You know, whereas if you have uh, a few issues to sort of take your time and tell a story, you can deal with the complexities of of real life and real politics. Yeah, so tell us a little bit about the format of how you're going to approach it. So you said we're going to break it into kind of two six-issue arcs. Will each issue kind of deal with a specific issue, or is it more just kind of building towards the end of each of those two stories? Yeah, sort of both. Um, each, each one has its own sort of uh, unique issue. Uh, issue one was largely just about introducing the characters. Issue two is about, like, the absurdity of the electoral process. And then there will be, like, an issue about, like... Um, drone warfare in the future, you know, and but at the same time, they all advance the central plot about 
Beth coming to power and then like becoming like a, a seasoned politician and, a, and, a, and an able president because she has the two assets that no other president in history has ever had and that she doesn't owe a lot of favors to people. She doesn't have to like pay people back for their support to get out. And she's not a product of the system. She hasn't learned what she can't do. So to her, there's, there's, there's no reason to believe that she can't do anything she, she comes up with. Looking at Prez number one, it's a very dark and messed up world that you've kind of presented us with. And like you said, we're going to kind of see how, how Beth comes into, into power and starts to deal with those things. So all in all, when this series is all said and done, do you think it's a, more of an optimistic story or a cynical one? I want it to be an optimistic story. I, want it, I think you have to paint a portrait of what's wrong with the world before you can like, say what, what, what should be done. But if you don't say what should be done or if you don't have opinions about what ways in which the world can be better, then what's the point? of painting a dark picture of the world. Otherwise, you're just moaning, you know? So, last question. Uh, where can I get a uh, taco drum today? I mean, I'm, I'm kind of hungry, right? I'm working on one in my garage. Uh, yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm coming, the taco's coming along much better than the drone right now, but I'll let you know. All right, thanks a lot. Next up is a trio of fantastic creators, Jimmy Palmiotti, Amanda Connor, and Chad Harden, as they talk about Harley Quinn, Harley Quinn Power Girl, and Starfire. When you guys wrote issue number 12 of uh, Harley Quinn, did you always plan on expanding that into a full kind of series or full story? Jimmy did. Uh, yeah, I actually, we, when we were writing it, I said, you know, it'd be great if we could just do a, like a, you know, a couple of weeks later when they're coming out of the ring. And I said, and if this does okay, this team up does okay, maybe it'll let us tell that story. And it did do okay. It, it did better than okay. And uh, so when we pitched it to Dan, we said, well, We'd like to take what happened in those two weeks, how Power Girl got in a wedding dress, why there's three-eyed cats, and why all this, and make it into six issues. He goes, yeah, if you can do that, if you can figure that out, go for it. So we, so we did. And, and then uh, we had Stefan Rue that wanted to draw it, and we kind of got lucky getting Stefan. So it all came together. It was sort of like, not a plan, but sort of like I left the door open in case something happened. Yeah. What has it been like to return to that character of Power Girl that you guys had such a big impact on just a couple of years ago? Well, we, we actually love Power Girl so much and we miss working on that character. So that's one of the reasons we just said, hey, let's put Power Girl and Harley. Why not? <laughs> so They're a good pairing so yeah. far. It's very good. Okay, so let's move on to some Harley Quinn stuff. So obviously the character of Harley Quinn has gotten immensely popular over the last year or so. Has that kind of fan involvement or popularity changed the way you guys view the character or the way you kind of aim to tell the story at all? Not, not so. I mean, we always loved the character, and we just we wanted to make her like the truest Harley that we knew how. And I think it's just resonated with a lot of people because they feel like it's you know very Harley-ish. And I, I think that might be one of the reasons that people love it so much is because they it, it feel she feels like Harley. You know, she's just she's wacky, she's crazy, a little homicidal, but lovable. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> right. we, we, we like to say it was because of Chad's artwork, too, that sucked everybody yeah, into the book. True. I mean, we got lucky because, again, uh, a lot of things were just timing. You know, the timing was right for the book. The uh, tone that we thought maybe or may, may not work actually worked, you know. And it's, it's always a hit and miss when you're going to actually change things up a little bit. So we got lucky this time. I could tell you about the 40 other times we didn't get lucky, but that would take up a whole other interview. So we're happy this worked out. Speaking of, I think a big part of its success has been it's a very fresh 
kind of approach to the to a superhero story. It's very comedic. It's a very very funny book. So, what is y'all's process on on writing that as a as a comedy book? Is it there are a lot of like throwing out ideas and then kind of maybe sketching them out and see what they look like, and then you see visually maybe there's something else that can go in, or how's that process for the three of you? You know, we don't we don't really. I, I honestly we don't really write it so much as a comedy as we write it as this is the story and then we find the funny moments in it the absurd moments because all superhero comic books can easily be done like this with everything they do every everything from the capes to the how ridiculous you know if they can if they can do all this why aren't they doing that kind of situation so with harley we actually try to lay out the story very grounded like a regular comic book format she's this is what's happening as a matter of fact as absurd as it is sometimes, she's actually based more in the real world than some other characters because she goes through the motions of she's on the streets, she goes from this place to that place. There isn't no jump of scenery. She has to get somewhere. We have whole scenes with car services and cabs. Or she's at work. Right. She's at, yeah, eating, right. eating. Right, eating. Yeah. She's trying to do three jobs. Right. Yeah, so yeah. it's actually really grounded. But in that, it's sort of like our own lives, right? There's these absurd moments that... We see every day, and we giggle, and then we forget about. And with Harley, it's like, so we have these absurd moments, and we take it like to a hyper sense of uh, reality. And then we hand it over to Chad, and then... Yeah, Chad, I always, whenever they give me the script, it's like, okay, how can I make this more? You know, and take you know take the football across the, the, the goal line, so to speak. And you, you know? always do. <laughs> <laughs> you always do. Yeah. <laughs> But I think it's less, I think it's, like I said, I think it's, uh, we, we like to think of it, whether it's perceived that way, we think of it as a very grounded, in reality, kind of story. And uh, we could be completely wrong and just getting by on what we think, and, uh, you know, but that's how we see it in a way. Also, when you throw Harley into the mix, like, you can have a very grounded story, but when Harley gets right. involved, then right. everything just goes it's upside down. She, she's yeah. the touch of chaos that spins the universe into... You know, exactly. into this chaotic motion, yeah. and that's where the absurdity comes in. I, I also think it's why people like the book because it is one of the few books we we know is a procedure of a superhero comic book is it's going to have the fight and a cliffhanger. Harley, you actually have no idea what's going to happen on the next page. You think you know, but we we throw random things. All of a sudden, there's 800 birds on it. Like we just go randomly in places, and it should be that way because that's how a brain is acts. So it shouldn't be so linear. In a way, and, and uh, it, like I said, it seems to work, and we were always happy. We get Everybody's Chad's happy. pages back, and we start laughing at things that we didn't even write that are in the background, and we're like, okay, that's a really good working team when everybody's trying to put their best into it. And you know, with Alex Sinclair on colors, yeah, I mean, it's it's just one of the. I think it's one of the most fun books I've ever worked on. You know, for sure. So yeah, I was going to ask you, Chad. What is the process like for you? How is it different drawing for writers that are very talented artists in their own right in that sense? How, how is that different from work you've done in the past? You know, I, I don't know how to explain it so much, but it is, it is different in that it, it is, it's the most challenging book I've ever been on. I don't, I don't know why. Like, people are like, well, why? And I'm like, I don't know. It just is. Um, but I think it's just because there, there's no way you can I, – I don't dare dial anything in. You, you know what I mean? Okay. I, th- does that make sense? We know where he is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, so everything's got to be perfect, 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 and uh, we're crossing all the T's, dotting all the I's, and and I. But I think the resp- the fans respond to that too. Yeah, I harass so. him once in a while. Yeah, With random little if, things. If, and I can tell immediately, like if if Jimmy likes something, I can tell immediately, immediately, because he'll either he'll give me a, like a one word note. 
like cool, awesome. If I don't get that, I'm like, okay, something's wrong. <laughs> right. Or something, I'll say, yeah. Staten Island has more trees. Right. Like, yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, he's yeah, like through yeah. the street. I said, yeah. Staten Island actually has more trees. He doesn't know Staten Island, yeah. so you know. Nope. And it been. has more trees. Well, it's not no island out in the middle of you know off of the coast of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah there's, there's like a lot of oops, a lot of little things. Yeah. Well, and I, I actually I did go to New York, and I I did. Walk around Coney. I took like a million pictures, but yeah, off the coast, I have no idea. Yeah. You know, across the Brooklyn Bridge, I have no idea. So, and, and we're dealing with a real city. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So there's uh, four million people in Brooklyn that might have something to say if we completely right. turn everything away. Right. You can't fake that geography. No, yeah. and actually, right. even even with the scatapult on the roof, we she kind of figures out where it is using the Google map where it would go over and what yeah. buildings yeah it, and it, we and we do we have we have a little map of the building the floors and i know which way it faces and i mean we're pretty anal about it i mean really yeah, yeah. we're so anal i actually have i've downloaded all these apps so i can know like what degrees it needs to be pointed to in order to hit any j train that might be going over the williamsburg bridge <laughs> you know oh no that's the l train no the j train goes You're never fine. mind <laughs> all right so last time i wanted to talk a little bit about uh, starfire real quickly so um how did you guys get on that book how did you get attracted to that character he asked us to write it <laughs> and he goes how do you feel about starfire and i'm like i don't know how i feel about starfire and amanda definitely had more of a history understanding to read all the 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 wolfman perez teen titans so i really like the character a lot so when i've seen her go through a lot of different you know incarnations yeah and they sent us a new 52 the couple of trades and we read those trades and i was like okay that's that but we also like the cartoon a lot like we we laugh our ass off that cartoon and i said there's got to be a way that we can make this work for us in order for us to have interest in writing it. So Dan said, all right, then just pitch how you would want to do it, and then we'll see if that works with what we're thinking. And we pitched the book you have. We said, well, Newtown, she doesn't want to be a superhero so much, so, and, uh, like, a new start. And uh, they went for it. So, you know, I I think they had confidence with with us doing Harley that maybe we can handle that. You know, it, it, it comes... I don't think we would have been offered it if we weren't doing Harley. I don't think it would have been a book they would have came to us with in a way. So we had to earn that book. I think that's all the time we've got. But thank you guys so much for talking to me. I love love all the books. You guys are doing a great job. Thanks a lot. Next up is Brendan Fletcher, who's here to talk about Black Canary and Gotham Academy. I want to start by saying I know I've heard that uh, Miyazaki's been a big influence on you for Gotham Academy. What parts of those movies or what aspect of that did you really want to kind of bring into Gotham Academy in the tone? What attracted you to that, that idea? I wouldn't say that um, my love for Miyazaki is something that I'm trying to put on the page of Gotham Academy or of any of my books. But discovering Miyazaki at a, at a young age and, and his uh, Studio Ghibli films really transformed my view of what it meant to tell a story and approach character and drama. And I think that's what I'm trying to bring to all of this. I'm just trying to be mindful of his approach. These books are completely different from anything he's done. So I'm hoping that when when people are examining what we're doing with that in mind, they're not trying to look for like specific plot elements or anything. Uh, I will say this, however, that I, I believe that what we have in common more than anything is our uh, the fact that we're, we seem to be drawn 
to tell stories about female protagonists. And um, if you look at most of Miyazaki's films, they're... I'm sorry, that's Careless Whisper on a saxophone being played at the San Diego Comic-Con. Um, you don't expect Wham! on a Friday morning. But yeah, I, I, think, I think I haven't really figured out why it is I'm drawn to telling stories with female protagonists, but this has always been the case since I've started writing. Every story that I've felt connected to has had a female protagonist. I don't do it on purpose, it's just what just what interests me. So, switching over to Black Canary for a second, that obviously probably draws from a very different kind of creative pool than, than Gotham Academy does. And I think that's, that's one you've got a personal experience with, right? So, how, how does your experience as a rock musician kind of inform the way you write that book or, or came up with that, that version of this character? Yeah, I've been playing music uh, all my life. I'm primarily a singer. I went to school for music, uh, studied voice, and... Um, classical singing. Uh, I ended up doing musical theater for years uh, and on the side was always playing in bands. At one point in my life I decided I didn't like the formal aspect of performance as much so I wanted to get out of classical. wasn't really into the musical theater scene. I liked the jobs but um, it wasn't really me. So I spent more time writing music and playing music and working on being a better instrumentalist. And that turned into some touring and uh, getting involved in the business of music. This was never something that I could really like make a living off of. I didn't, uh, I didn't become a world-famous musician, but I experienced enough of the life to inform this new world I'm building for Dinah Lance in the Black Canary book. With Gotham Academy, you're co-writing with uh, Becky Cloonan. So co-writing is always kind of a really interesting collaboration among comics. So I'm always curious, kind of what is that process like to, to co-write with her? It's interesting. You know, like... I. I think we could talk about it in terms of how Becky and I work, but this is a full team effort, and Carl is in on the story building at every phase of the, the project. We start usually by just going out for a coffee, and uh, I've got some ideas, Becky's got some ideas, Carl usually has some ideas, and we turn that into a, a look at where the story should be going. Then at that point, Becky and I create a breakdown for the issue. We, we figure out what the 20 pages is going to look like in rough, give that to Carl. Carl tells us we're wrong. And we have to go back and retool it until he's happy with it. And then from there, we hand it to the editors, who sometimes tell us we're wrong. Eventually, we get to scripting. And uh, that's another point where Carl will fix things or tell us we're wrong. Or sometimes he just doesn't. And we'll just draw. I'm not even kidding you. We'll change things on the page, like draw how he (laughs) thinks it should go. And 100% of the time he's right. Carl is an extremely gifted storyteller, a great writer, Eisner award-winning writer-artist. And what we have is this incredible merging of uh, visions. Well, I I think we share a vision, but we merge our our talents and abilities and our individual ideas to become this this wonderful wonderful thing that's Gotham Academy. So when you're writing a, a script for different artists, like, say, for example, when, uh, with Black Canary with Annie Wu, how does your scripting style differ between different artists? Are you writing towards their strengths, or how are you kind of changing the way you write? Yeah, totally different. I mean, the only reason I'm writing full script for Gotham Academy is because I'm collabing with Becky, and the office requires it. Not requires it. I think can get away with it without doing it. But, I mean, they like to see a full script. With Carl... Uh, we can pretty much just get on the phone and say, yeah, page 20 kind of looks like this, and he'll deliver, and it'll be perfect. Annie and I had a talk early on about how she liked to approach things, and um, 
she had been working with Matt Fraction on Hawkeye for a while, and she wanted a script that was closer to what Matt was doing. So this is the first time that I've written closer to what is known as the Marvel style. So Annie wants a looser breakdown of what the page looks like with some script beats in there. Um, And she can push and pull those things as she wants. She adds beats, removes beats. But ultimately, the core of the story that I'm trying to get across, the core of the the movement to the characters is all there on the page. Last thing about uh, Black Canary here. When you kind of first started out with that, were you able to, have you been able to kind of pick and choose what aspects of her past you wanted to include in this version? Or is this kind of something you've... um, kind of a challenge to deal with continuity with the story that you're trying to tell, being that's kind of an unusual superhero story. I have a, a relatively clean approach to continuity, which is just that I ignore everything that I don't <laughs> like. I will never contradict it, or to the, you know, the best of my ability, I won't contradict it. But if something feels off to me, yeah. I'll just try my best to avoid it. And um, I am playing into a lot of the New 50 continuity for Dinalance, but I'm using it for very specific reasons, which you'll see over this first arc. I'm trying to bring it all together and, and, and make it make sense in a way that makes Dinah feel like the iconic version of the character that we know and love. Yeah. yeah. Very cool. She's a welcome member to the uh, ever-growing Fletcherverse that we all love. <laughs> so uh, thanks so much for your time, man. I really appreciate it. Last but not least for the DC interviews, we have Tom King and Tim Seeley talking about their great book, Grayson. First, I want to kind of ask, Grayson kind of paved the way for a lot of these genre books that have started, started, to, uh, <laughs> have started to kind of come about at DC in, in a lot of ways, a really cool kind of revolution for the, for the publisher. How do you guys feel, what do you feel are the advantages or the challenges of telling a more genre story within a superhero universe? Well, I think, I mean... Inherently, superheroes are really flexible and always have been. Um, and it's, it's, you're sort of making a hero that's bigger than, than, a, than an idea and bigger than one person. And then you can put it in so many different things. Obviously, Batman is sort of more of a detective story. Superman is more of a science fiction story. But they all are some superhero stories. So I think our approach to this was let's do a espionage-style genre story, but let's firmly embrace its superhero roots. And you just kind of get that wonderful fusion that makes superheroes the most popular, pretty much the most popular genre on Earth at this point, you know, that they're so flexible and that they're so available to embrace new things while still being a story that are aspirational and fun and colorful and crazy. The approach was never for us, like, let's write in the spy genre. It was like, let's write the best Dick Grayson story we can. Like, growing up, I didn't realize that I was reading different genres. Like, I didn't realize when I read Simonson's Thor that I was reading a huge fantasy epic. It still felt like a superhero story to me. Yeah, yeah. Right? Sure. Or, like, when I was reading, like, I didn't read, like, the the noir detective stuff of year one. Like, I didn't get that he was using all those tricks. Like, I, I think we're taking the spy genre and using that to tell the best superhero stories. We're stealing some tropes to inject some energy. Yeah. And but we we we're superhero writers. We want to write freaking awesome superhero stories. Am I allowed to say that? I don't know. I'm saying it. I think so. <laughs> so one of the other really cool things about the book when it very first got started is, I think uh, we all know Grant Morrison leaves the DC universe with all these cool characters and ideas and concepts, and unfortunately a lot of them never get touched on again. How did you come about kind of following up on some of those threads from Batman Incorporated and and that sort of. You know, to start the book off. Uh, my my main approach to that was to throw away my parts of the pitch and take Tim's pitch. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, so the idea, and I, it's funny because that's exactly how I've always sort of thought of Grant's stuff. Is he just he just blow, he blows in with a bunch of crazy ideas and then just drops the mic and walks out. And and a lot of people don't pick up on that stuff because it's sort of too 
weird or, you know, and, and they're or so Grant Morrison, but I mean, I'm, I feel like I've always, uh, I've been reading Grant's stuff for so long and I, I sort of always recognized how great these like ideas were. And I always frustrated me when people didn't pick them up that like, I was going to rectify that wrong. I was like, I'm going to use this amazing thing he left behind called spiral. It has to be used because it's so weird and so fun. Um, so, you know, that's kind of how we, when DC said, make, make Dick a spy. Um, my first pitch was, I, I couldn't think of anything. And then Chris Burnham sat in my studio and he was drawing the Batman ink stuff and he had left like a spiral symbol or something on the table. And I was like, that's it. I'll just use spiral. It's I've just never heard right that story. Because he was working on the studio. So, I mean, like, I think he... That's an exclusive story because I've been yeah. on every interview with him. I've never heard that before. <laughs> well, I mean, it made me think of them, you know, like, that's awesome. But uh, it made me think of the, you know, the... And Chris designed that symbol, too. So, like, yeah, it helps when you're around comic dudes all the time, too. So yeah. you can steal their ideas. <laughs> but it seems so appropriate for the character because Dick is sort of a black and white guy. Like, there's good and bad, and he's, you know... He's willing to do the right thing. He's always going to do the right thing. But he's going to work for someone who is completely gray. And that therein lies the conflict of our issues. Yeah. Okay, so I've got a couple character questions here. So, Kathy Kane, we think uh, might have shown up at the end of issue eight here. Do you guys have plans to expand on that or, or have further her story? In this series, nothing is what it seems. I, I, we, we keep saying this and we're going to keep saying it. Our goal is 100% to surprise you. We never want you to be relaxed and to be like, okay, I know where this is going. I'm going to sit down and read another villain of the month. I don't, I don't like those kind of comics. I want the stakes to be high. I want you to be um, blown away by what you're reading. So I, I, I think, I can't spoil what's going to happen, but it's not what you think is going to happen. Well, and also keep in mind that Spiral's whole thing is spreading disinformation and, and mind control. So sometimes we may be playing the Spiral game on the readers. That's how we keep ourselves entertained, by being the villains that we portray in the comic book. So you guys are definitely. When you guys first started out, did you always plan to move Helena into the, the place that she is now within the story? Was that kind of a long form arc you planned for a long time? Yeah, I mean, I think one of our ideas was uh, to always change it up so that, you know, that their relationship is constantly changing. She's his partner, she's his boss, he's her boss, they're dating, they're romantically involved, they're not, and all that sort of. So what makes it fun is this sort of you can as a reader you're constantly second guessing what the plan is you know yeah. um, so that was definitely part of the deal but go ahead expand upon my prattling well we we'd introduced this character um, type the tiger agent one as the sort of the best spy in the DCU and um, he's this like Afghani the tiger king of Kandahar and he's such a freaking great character and as soon as I put him on the page I wanted him to be Dick's partner I love the chemistry between them and I love where they could go together and I wanted to elevate him so the idea of having them as partners and then Helena above them is just like too appealing as soon as like I said that was like alright so yeah <laughs> and it's, it changes up Dick's relationships with uh, the other characters too because Helena was a very understanding but firm partner and Tiger thinks he's a total dick like he, Tiger's just always you know telling him he's an idiot and so their relationship changes. It keeps us, allowing us to keep making a book about all kinds of different things. So there have been a lot of kind of little hints here and there that uh, Dick Grayson might be bisexual. Is that something that you guys uh, plan on expanding on or exploring? No, I mean... What? No, he's talking about his bow tie. His bow tie was not straight. Yeah, he's talking about his bow tie. For sure. But I mean, 
for us, there's there's some fun in the this, this sort of sexy aspect of, of a spy genre, sure. and um, but I think you know, to us, the character is is a very flexible guy. I don't know if it's our job in this particular story to 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 do anything that you know changes his sexuality, but but I think it's fun to play around with because part of his job is to be the seducer. Yeah, um, it's also to be play parts that are not necessarily who he, are, he is, and part of it is sometimes him discovering things about himself as he plays parts. So, yeah, it's just another in our, you know, ways of keeping you guessing. That's yeah. the fun, right? You know, like, who's talking about his time? I don't know you guys <laughs> are talking about. All right. Um, so you guys have a really kind of unique collaboration, the way you co-write, kind of, you know, alternating and all that stuff. What do you think makes your partnership on this book a, a really good one for this character and the, the method that you guys work in. How do, why do you think that works so well for this book? So I come from this school of super, uh, superhero comics where I worship sort of Frank Miller and Alan Moore. And I think if you, if you read my other stuff, like Omega Men, you'll, you'll see that. And it's very, this like, I, I kind of, I, I, like, I want to tell dark dirges and, and like, like interesting philosophical stories. And that is not who Dick Grayson is. There is a Dick Grayson story out there that everybody sort of, that's always tempting to be like, oh, he was raised by Batman, he hates it, and Batman sort of abused him and put him in this situation, and he's sad, and he thinks about it and looks into his belly button. And I would probably write that story. I wrote a whole novel for Simon Schuster was about that concept if Tim Seeley wasn't here to be like, Tom, no, this is fun, this is exciting, this is amazing. Let's do in a super cool adventure comic and get me out of that. So I'm just <laughs> grateful for it. Well, it also worked. I mean, yeah, I'm the lighter of the two of us as far as the, the approach to superheroes goes, but I think it helps that um, well, Tom brings in obviously this interesting perspective is that he has been in the field and he has been, he's done that sort of thing. He knows the emotional weight of it. And then uh, I think the way the book works is that you feel this sort of back and forth that is kind of probably what Dick's life would be like, where it can be very complex and sort of more dark. And you get an issue like number three, where, you know, uh, or four, or what's the one with the, with Agent Eight? Three, right? I get screwed three. up because Future's End is in there and it it's messes three, up yeah, my... It's three. Okay. Uh, but you get, and that's very much a Tom story. And I think that's important that we have those moments in the book. But, uh, you know, we can also do an issue like number four, which is somewhat lighter and sort of, you know, about the youthful aspect of Dick Grayson. And, and, um, and I think when, when Tom and I first started talking about doing the book, we would just have these long conversations about what it means to be Dick and what's his, sta- his place in the DC universe and what... In the end, we, came, we, we batted around a lot of stuff, and some of it was the same and some of it wasn't. But when we got down to it, we totally agreed on what, what he is. So what kind of book he's in can change, but who he is, I think we agree 100%. So that, I, mean, I think that's why we get a book that people respond to. I think I wouldn't have wrote the book the way it is without Tom, and Tom wouldn't have wrote it the way it is without me. Yeah. So, and neither of us sort of wrote it the way it is without Mikhail Janin and Jeremy Cox. So... It's all about the sort of collaboration. That's why the book is what it is. Yeah. It's a lot of voices melding into one solid voice. Yeah, it's really cool. And yeah, people have responded to it, for sure. So, last thing here. What real or fictional spies are kind of your inspirations for Dick Grayson? And uh, if you had to choose which version of James Bond is, is Dick Grayson? Go ahead, real-life spy. My buddy Fred, my buddy Jane. Um, All of a sudden, the sniper light is on your head. <laughs> uh, can I can I give like the stupid avoiding answer? Like I don't really, I don't look to, to a different spot. Dick Grayson inspires like that character. I don't need. He doesn't need another character to be laid over him. He's got seventy five years of history. He's older than James Bond. Yeah. 
Yeah. James Bond was inspired by him. So I... I'm not trying... I'm not trying to write a book that's James Bond in the DCU. I'm trying to write a book that is Dick Grayson in the DCU. Yeah. So that would be my... I think that's the answer, yeah. I think the, the job of the book is to sort of play with the tropes that you're familiar with in the spy genre, to play with the kind of story that you're used to, but to do it differently and to add this character that's the heart of the story. And so, you know, Dick being who he is and his history, and, and the be- that's really the core of the book. And we know, as people who have seen a lot of movies and read a lot of books and read a lot of comics, what a spy story is and what those characters are. But to us, it's about playing against them or playing with the tropes or... Um, yeah, because it's about, it's about Dick Grayson first, for sure. That was a good answer, Tom. That wasn't a cheesy answer. It was a good answer. <laughs> Rocked it. If any of this sounds good, the trade just came out. Yes. It's the hardcover, and, it ha- and we're so proud of it, and it's the first volume, and it has my Future's End issue in it, which was the weird backwards one, which I can't believe how proud I am of that issue. Yeah. Um, so please check that out. Will do. You heard it here. Definitely check that out. Awesome. Thank you guys so much. First up in our two Archie Comics interviews is Mark Wade, who talks about Archie number one. First, uh, I want to just kind of generally ask, what's your history with Archie? Have you, have you been a fan of the characters for a long time, or how did you get involved? Yeah, I've been a fan for, I mean, like everybody, I've read Archie comics growing up, but I worked on staff for a brief time as an editor in the early 90s, like the way early 90s, and at that point really did a deep dive on the character for the first time, went through the library and read all that stuff, and that made me an aficionado for life, and just looking at the beauty and the variety and the bounce of the artwork from the 40s and 50s and stuff and watching the character dynamics and realizing that these characters are much deeper than we give them credit for. Or much There's much more to them than, than we tend to see. So when they called me a few months ago and asked me if I wanted to jump in on this, you know, my first instinct was, I'm a 53-year-old man, why are you asking me about 16-year-old teenagers? But then I thought about it and I thought, look, I, you know what, I'm, I'm, willing to take, I'm willing to step up to the plate and take a swing at that because I love these characters and I'm very protective whenever I take on something like Daredevil or Superman or Archie or something I'm very protective of characters who have existed since before I was born because I think that there's clearly something about them that makes them perennial character that makes them vital and makes people still want to tell stories about them after all these years and that fascinates me like what is it about those characters drilling down and then trying to figure out what that little what that little nugget is that makes those characters something where as opposed to like and I use these examples all the time but you as opposed to like Betty Boop or Woody Woodpecker or Andy Panda or characters that are just nostalgic like nobody's telling stories about those characters yeah or nobody or nobody knows who they are because nobody's telling stories about them so that's what fascinates me about so the Archie characters that way you know when they gave me that opportunity I thought okay clearly my high school experience is different than your high school experience is different than my 15 year old stepdaughter's experience but there are certain things about being a teenager that I swear to God are universal. And, and you know, just the, uh, the idea that you don't know who you are yet, and you're trying to figure out your identity, or you remember what it's like to be flustered and embarrassed around the opposite sex, you know, or, or, or that feeling that everything you do is the end of the world and, like, any, any bad thing that happens is, like, it's going to last forever. Those are the things that are universal to every teenager who ever lived. And so that's the stuff you concentrate. You don't concentrate on... Snapchat and Instagram and Twitter and hashtag and stuff like that. That's not the stuff you cram into the story. Just to, that's window dressing. The stuff that makes it timeless is the, is the emotions. 
So I thought one of the kind of interesting things about the story as we were hearing about it before it came out, actually, is that you were kind of tackling the origin of Archie, which is always, it's kind of funny because usually think of an origin as, you know, somebody in comic books getting their superpower, stopping their first crime or whatever. How did you go about figuring out what you thought, where should be the starting point for the origin for the character? I really started thinking about the Betty, Veronica, Archie dynamic, because the thing is, this, and this is going back to the original DNA of the strip, the whole idea of will Archie choose Betty or Veronica is actually a fairly recent construct. That's more of like an 80s, 90s thing. And while it served the comics well at the time, and it's certainly one of the questions that still people still ask, well, you know, will she, will she choose Betty or Veronica? It, in a weird, it, it kind of makes the girls like property to be owned. It sort of makes them feel like they're, they're, Compete and it's too. It's weird too that they're supposed to be best friends and yet they're both dating the same boy all the time. So I stepped back from that and I thought, let's go back to the original DNA of the strip, which is that Betty is the tomboy underdog who is attracted to Archie but can't get his attention because of glamorous Veronica and Archie being a, a dumbass about that. And that just made more sense to me. So with that in mind, the other thing that we that made it, sort of makes it feel like an origin is that. You know, I needed it to be a more diverse cast. I just desperately needed it to be a more diverse cast because the the five main Archie characters are Reggie, Jughead, Archie, Betty, Veronica, are traditionally white characters, white CIS characters. You know, and 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 I, I needed a little more variety there. Luckily, Archie has a very deep bench in the last ten years of very diverse characters, uh, supporting characters in the Archie universe. So the first instinct was, well, let's leave Veronica off the table for a little while. Let's leave Reggie off the table for a little while. Let's make room for Raj and 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 Kevin and some of the other characters who are not your typical white bread Archie characters. And so I think that also sort of helped with, kind of unintentionally, but that sort of also helps it make feel like an origin and that you're still introducing some of these characters. So yeah, you talked in the panel earlier a little bit about how your approach to Betty kind of, as she's really that teenage spot like we were kind of talking about that, you know, she's kind of not one of the boys anymore suddenly and it's this kind of awkward stage. Do you plan on kind of exploring a lot of the characters in that way and giving them kind of a point of view in, in, as opposed to the book just being about Archie? Oh yeah, because that's the thing. I mean, Archie's the like the hub of the wheel, right? Archie is the is the guy who has to be the most in a way he has to be the most unremarkable character in the book because everyone else is is sort of like Archie but He's a foodie, you know. Archie Butt, she's a tomboy. Archie Butt, she's a glamorous. So every, you know, so everybody is a variation on the on the on the typical American teenager. So he used to be at the center. The problem with that, of course, is that a typical American teenager is not terribly a, a glamorous or interesting in and of itself. And I'm not quite sure what that means in the 21st century either. So what I'm doing is is using Archie as sort of the lens to look at all those other characters. And so issue two deals a lot more with Jughead and why Jughead is an iconoclast and why he wears that hat and why he is why he is the way he is. Issue three deals a lot more with, I didn't, you know, Veronica could just be a stuck-up rich bitch, but that's, you know what, first off, we hate her that way. And secondly, that's not very interesting. So instead, treating her more like, it's Kim Kardashian coming to your high school. And, you know, she doesn't think she's a bad person. And most of the time, she's not a bad person. But it's still, she doesn't really connect well with the little people. So that's the trick, is really sort of drilling down on them and making them interesting and making them all relatable. And, you know, nobody invents a time machine. You know, nobody has such a wacky adventure that it can never really happen to a teenager. We kind of push the envelope a little bit. But by and large, I want to keep those characters pretty well grounded. So one of the other things that's kind of 
interesting about starting a new Archie series is in the past, Archie stories have primarily not been continuity right. at all. It's all just kind of one-off stories. So is your your approach to be kind of telling those in more arc layout, or is it more uh, one long story, or are you kind of aiming for those little bits? Or? It's, a, it's a little bit. It's sort of like an, in, in the arc format, but every issue still stands on its own. Every issue is a beginning, middle, and end, and then the soap opera is what brings you back from issue to issue. And then in terms of continuity, look, you know, if... If the other artists and writers who are doing the Archie stuff want to play off what I'm doing, that's awesome. If they if they want to, if Chips at Archie instead wants to do Jughead in space, that's fine too. That's going to be awesome. So it just that's the th- the Archie stuff really does adapt itself really well to whether it's continuity or not continuity. I mean, all the stuff in the '60s. There's this great book that just came out called Twelve Cent Archie. It's by an art uh, an author named Bart Beatty, and it's an examination of the Archie comics in the 1960s and how continuity didn't mean anything. And that was the strength. Like, in one story, Betty can be a master chef. And in the very next story, Betty can burn everything down in the kitchen. It didn't matter as long as the—because it served the plot. Archie can be a football hero in one issue, and the next issue, he's a scrub. didn't matter because it's funny, and that's the plot. And so there's a part of me that, you know, I like doing the sort of, you know, the arc stuff where there's a continuity to it. But I have no problem at all I, if people want to run off in a different direction. I mean, again, Zdarsky and, and the, you know, they announced Adam Hughes today. And I just wanted to see them do their thing. I'll give you an easy one to to wrap us up. Team Betty or Team Veronica? Uh, team Team Betty, Team Betty. But I'm I'm beginning to soften on Veronica a little bit as we as we get into that very shellac head of hers. Yeah. Very cool. I think I'm I'm somewhere along that that line too. <laughs> but cool. Thank you so much. I really appreciate. It. And our last interview is with Alex Segura, who is the editor of the Dark Circle line at Archie, as well as Roberto Aguirre Sacasa, who writes. Afterlife with Archie and Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, and also has a lot of involvement with the new Riverdale TV series. So uh, I wanted to first talk a little bit with you, Alex, about Dark Circle. So first of all, kind of just in general, how do you think Dark Circle or Archie Comics in general is going to aim to tell new and exciting superhero stories through your line and in a sea of superhero comics? How do you expect to stand out? Uh, I think the key for us is just to be different and good, you know, the, I think I'm, I really strongly believe that quality just rises to the top. You can, you can put as much dressing on something as you want, but if the story and the art's not good, it doesn't matter. And I talked a little bit about this on the Dark Circle panel, but finding voices that maybe are familiar with the tropes of comics but aren't beholden to them, you know, can bring in a different perspective. People like Chuck Wendig and Adam Christopher and Dwayne Swarzynski, they know comics, but they know other medium like TV and novels and uh, movies and so they come at it from a different perspective, and it's we're building Dark Circle more as a network. You know, it's each each book is its own little show, and maybe down the line they'll interact with each other. But fans don't have that same kind of company pressure, I think, where you have like checklists of twenty books you have to get to understand one event. Uh, we don't do events; we do stories. What can you tell us about uh, about the new, pretty newly announced series, uh, The Web? What's, what can we expect from that? Well, the web, the star is Jane Raymond, and she's a 14-year-old girl, a Korean-American girl who's super into cosplay, and she's a teenager. She's one of these characters that once I read that first script, I was like, she feels like a teenager, you know? She's dealt with tragedy. Her mother's just passed away, and she's stumbling upon being a superhero, which is insane. It's really showing you what happens when a teenager gains enhanced abilities and has to face real problems like street gangs, violence, and teenage life. I mean... I can't imagine being a teenager now. I remember how stressful it was being a teenager maybe 20 years ago. But um, it's really Dave White, who's the writer, has done a great job of trying to be true to the character and also a nod to the history but not weighing it down with continuity. 
And um, the other thing that's really cool about the Dark Circle line is just how incredibly diverse it is. You've got, you know, action spy thriller to more wacky adventure to super, super dark crime and horror. You know, what do you think of the advantages of having such a diverse line while still being within kind of the superhero genre overall? First of all, thank you for saying that, and that's really a testament to uh, this gentleman with the Archie Horror stuff. You know, that really kicked the door down with uh, Afterlife and Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. But um, all I have is my taste and my gut, and, you know, talking to John and Roberto and Mike and Jesse Goldwater, it's really, if it's good, does it take up a new space in the line? And that's really, we want to present fans with a variety and a, a steal of quality. To me, if you see the Dark Circle logo, that's like a company logo. It tells you, it is a company logo. It tells you that this is good. Whereas I think in other places, it just means you have a lot or it just means something else. And uh, I want people not necessarily to feel compelled to buy it because they're completing a collection, but feel compelled to buy it because they want to read it. Yeah. So shifting gears a little bit here, I uh, definitely wanted to talk a little bit about the TV show that we recently had the big announcement that it's going to be on the CW. That's very, very exciting. Yeah. So what can you tell us about the the tone or the look of the show? I know, I know earlier when you guys were talking about it, you've mentioned that it was kind of a surreal tone a little bit. How does it look now, having announced that it's on the CW and everything? You know, it still has, um, I think when we, when we ended up pitching it, you know, the very high concept pitch was that it was a teen version of Twin Peaks. And by that, it was sort of like, you know, on Twin Peaks, the whole story is kicked off by the death of, or the murder of, homecoming queen Laura Palmer. So imagine that you were telling that story, but instead of following the grown-ups of Twin Peaks, you were following all of Laura Palmer's classmates and how that kind of story is used to kind of uncover all the secrets. That makes it sound like a really, really dark show. And though there are undercurrents of that and weirdness, it's still Archie. There's still the love triangle. You know, Josie and the Pussycats are in it. Music, there's a lot of music in it. So it's kind of a mix of light and dark, serious and funnier stuff. And, um, you know, kind of like life and coming of age on some level is kind of a loss of innocence. So that's a, that's kind of a big theme. So it's, it's sort of a hodgepodge of all that stuff. Very cool. So like what, what other kind of TV shows or movies did you kind of take inspiration from when putting together the, the pilot? Yeah. Well, we talked a lot about it being, feeling like a John Hughes movie. The other movie that came, like for instance, uh, Perks of Being a Wallflower, The Spectacular Now, The Way, Way Back. Those are movies that, that kind of are all touchstones in terms of tone and stuff. And yeah, I, and also like, you know, the core will always be the love triangle and will always be the characters. So as long as their kind of their essences remain, but you know, we talked about Dawson's Creek as being an inspiration, which Greg Berlanti, who's the producer on this, worked on. We talked about Everwood, which is about a small, you know, a family in a small town. So all those different kind of influences just kind of all have been absorbed and trickled down into the show. I know one of the things I think you might have mentioned on the, the Reddit AMA is you'd hope to do maybe a Halloween special every year that's yes. kind of an afterlife with Archie yes. thing. Is that something you still want to do? Yes, absolutely, for sure. That'd be great. Yeah, we'd love that. Every every Halloween, there'd be a Halloween episode. Like kind of on, you know, remember on Roseanne, you may not remember this, but on Roseanne, they always did a Halloween episode every year. Or Treehouse of Horrors. Yeah. Okay, so talking about Afterlife with Archie a little bit, did you guys always plan on expanding that past kind of the zombie genre as you have at this point? And what do you, what kind of uh, monsters or, or horror ideas do you see coming up in the future for the book? Yeah, I, you know, it, you know, I think we did originally think it was going to just be a zombie book, but then kind of as it went on, it very quickly kind of 
started encroaching on other horror genres. And now, really, it's sort of the sky's the limit. I mean, the one thing we, we probably won't do in Afterlife because we have Sabrina's witches. So even though Sabrina and her aunts have small parts in Afterlife, that's the one thing we won't, probably won't dive into. Otherwise, everything else is kind of on the table in terms of horror-wise, you know, and, and there's still a lot of characters in the Archie library that we haven't yet met in Afterlife that we will be meeting. So the storytelling in that book is really, really phenomenal. What is your process like working with Francisco Francavilla with scripting it and, and putting the whole book together? It's, you know, it's, we talk about every issue in advance and kind of check in to make sure that this is kind of the area that, an area that Francesco is interested in drawing in. And then it's, I, I mean, I do full scripts and they are full scripts. I, I usually give probably more art direction than Francesco wants, although, you know, obviously he's a genius, and if he changes around a layout of a page, then I'll adjust based on that. But, it, I mean, it's pretty much, it's pretty traditional, like, full script, and then he does that stuff, and then if something changes, I, it's always better. Okay, so let's talk about uh, Sabrina for a yeah. second here. What, how did you decide to kind of make that a separate world from Afterlife with Archie, and what kind of... What kind of research went into making that new world that kind of takes place much farther in the past? Yeah. You know, I think it was, I'm not exactly sure what, what led to that. I know we wanted to do a book that wasn't super tied to Afterlife because it felt like if we were doing that story, let's just put it in Afterlife. And I, I had wanted to do a book, a period book for a while. And then I, and then it, so many of the movies and, and, and books that, that are an inspiration for Sabrina, like Rosemary's Baby or The Exorcist or The Omen, they all are obviously retro now. And it felt like, oh, this is going to be a slower burn and it's going to be a little bit more psychological. So I thought, oh, if we set it in the 60s, people won't think, oh, it's in the same universe as Afterlife. It's a little weird that there's a Sabrina in Afterlife and then there's a different Sabrina who's in Chilling Adventures. We're in comics. We're used to that, yeah, right? We're used to it, exactly. So it was that. And then Robert Hack, who draws the book and colors the book and inks the book, he loves all the retro stuff. So he has a huge library of visual references, uh, much much more so than I. And I'll say stuff like, they go to the movies and there are movie posters for movies that would be playing then, and he always fills in that stuff himself. So he he has a really good sense of that. And um, I know yesterday, too, there was another another title maybe kind of announced at, yes. uh, at the panel. So Ooh, what can Yeah, so what can you tell us about that? You know, not much. What I can tell you, though, that, you know, maybe a, two years ago, Dan Parent uh, did, a, did a, two issues of Betty and Veronica that introduced this concept of Betty the Vampire Slayer and Vampironica. And I was talking to Francesco, and he's like, you know, I love vampires. I love pretty girls. You know, I love Veronica. And we just sort of started talking about that, and he said, and he kind of had an idea about it, and that's all I can say about it. Cool. More news to come. <laughs> awesome. So one of the great things about Archie Comics, or one of the grand traditions, is these really wacky, crazy crossovers that they've done in the past. You know, yes. so being that you two guys are kind of running these two separate lines of horror and, and more Tom long lines of crime and, and action and more mature themes, are there any plans to kind of? In you know, cross those universes or, or crossovers within those universes or anything like you that? No, we haven't had the formal discussion, but like John likes, John Goldwater always says, everything's on the table if it's a good idea. Yeah. So 
Dark Circle wise, we're getting it off the ground. Archie Horror is rolling. So maybe someday. Yeah. Never say. No, no. I, that, that, I, listen, a lot of people have pitched a lot of crazy crossover ideas, but no one yet has pitched a Dark Circle Archie Horror crossover. Well, we it's are launching our first horror book in Dark Circle, The yeah. Hangman. So yeah. there is definitely room to play there. So. And and not to tease anything, but don't we have a big crossover? Yeah, we're announcing a big crossover tonight. I don't know when this is going live, so. Ah, not for a while. We're announcing Archie Meets the Ramones tonight. Oh, wow, that's So fantastic. I'll be co-writing that with Matt Rosenberg, art by Giselle, who's done stuff like Occupy Riverdale, her own cool comics, and she's that's a huge awesome. Ramones fan, so. Very cool. Is that sort of a follow-up to Archie Meets Kiss kind of idea? You know, Jesse, Jesse Goldwater said, well, you're kind of captaining the Archie music sub-universe yeah, so yeah. There, will, there will be little nods that the fans that have read both will get but it'll be a fun standalone rock and roll high school thing that's awesome yeah. very cool yeah that, that's going to be announced today so last thing just what do you guys love about working for Archie I mean there's so there's so much to love it's a it's a it's a comic publisher that has you know grown massively in the last couple of years what do you guys love about working here yeah, I mean, I love that, you know, risk-taking and being really creative is rewarded. And I love, you know, I, I don't just wear this at Comic-Con. I wear this every day. And I love people's uh, passion for the characters. And that's actually my favorite thing is that when, when I say, oh, and I do this for Archie, their, their eyes immediately light up uh, because they have so many associations with these characters. And to be at a place where you can work with them and and take risks with them uh it's just great yeah i mean for me i've worked on so on a bunch of major brands and uh you know archie's right up there with the likes of them because everyone knows archie you know you tell someone you're at a party you say i work at archie and their eyes light up because everyone has an archie story and my first comic was a betty and ronica double digest with a great dan DiCarlo cover of them dancing and I remember the first time I read a Cheryl Blossom story, and, yeah. you know, I love the characters. I think John is a great boss in terms of, like Roberto said, taking risks, being creative, and not being afraid. Yeah. You know, we'll always try the new thing if it makes sense and not be afraid, and, you know, just keep rolling. I think it's great. Awesome. Well, more power to you guys. I love everything you're putting out. Great. Thank you so much for your time. So, after four massive segments... You have now finished listening to episode 97 of the Geek Rex podcast. Uh, we really hope you've enjoyed all this interview content from San Diego Comic-Con. Just a reminder, if you want to support Geek Rex, the best way to do that is to use our Amazon link. So if you go to geekrex.com, at the very top right, there's a link to Amazon. If you click that link, it takes you to the Amazon you know and love. And anything you buy, we get a very small percentage of that, that those that little percentage goes a long way to helping us out on our overhead costs and taking us places like San Diego Comic-Con. So we really appreciate your support. Also, if you like the podcast or if you have a suggestion or an idea, uh, please don't hesitate to either contact us or give us a rating on iTunes. Uh, Rating on iTunes is by far and away the best way to spread our name and and get more people out there listening to Geekrex. So we really appreciate your support. Thanks so much for listening to this episode, and we'll be back soon. (music) 